keep it around. I got a letter from Kitty. Says, have you ever thought changing your theme? Well, uh, yes, actually. No, I couldn't conceivably do that. Now, the reason I have this theme, kid, is not because it's a good piece of music, but for exactly the opposite reason, which to me makes far more sense. This piece of music, kid, is probably the most mediocre piece of claptrap that has ever been perpetrated upon the listening public within the last 122 years, barring, of course, John Cage. Now, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and the reason that is, uh, I think, uh, uh, particularly apropos is because, first of all, it always sounds like it's going to break into something better, but it never does. And uh, it has a certain nutty insouciance, which, uh, in some ways, is related to the nutty insouciance of the late Don Quixote. Let's say it gallops off in all directions, but arrives at none of them. How like life itself, eh, kid? How like what it's all about, right, kid? Well, then how could I conceivably think of doing away with this piece of uh, claptrap? Which, by the way, I think it's a great expression. Oh, would you please play a little more of that claptrap, Bob? Just hit it up. Listen to it. Oh, yeah. See, it starts out with a bugle. You know? Listen to that bugle. Oh, man. Anything that starts out with a bugle is, uh, you know, it's, it's filled with portent. And then the, the sound of a thundering orchestra galloping endlessly over the plain. That's exactly why I use it for this theme. <laughs> and it's timeless. And it's also a failure. I like all of it. Uh, I mean, a failure in the ultimate sense. Speaking of ultimate failures, oh, boy, oh, wow. Oh, uh, uh, would, you, would you please look in, into our, hey, honey, would you please look into our collection of uh, fabulous 50 moments of fantastic, idiotic, bad music, please. And would you get me out something that has great, great, uh, how about, how about that, uh, how about that piece of music, uh, how about that Rachmaninoff concerto there? That's so good. All right? You, 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 you set this thing up because, uh, you know, it's Monday. We've got to get off to a good start here this week, you know? Oh, boy. I don't like it all. And, uh, it's a, it's claptrap. It's failure. Oh, man, his ultimate failure, of course, we all know about. We're all part of it. And so we want to salute that tonight. Uh, you don't have to cue it up, Bob. Just bring it in for a little mood. It doesn't have to hit the opening note. That's it. Yes, there it is. That's it. Man hopes his aspirations flow like a great, vast, a purple, puce river down to the enormous of ambition. And that eternal, that eternal, very irritating contrast between what man thinks he is and what man is has always been hanging around the edges of our consciousness. And what better night than a Monday night to talk about failure? Reset that 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 uh, thing. We need that because you see, I think I think that uh, we're all bugged by a little sense that uh, here it is. Uh, here it is, almost the end of July. In fact, it is the end of July, and you haven't done anything with summer yet. 
stage. Went swimming once. <laughs> and then you got there about three hours too late, and all the traffic was already leaving, and it got cold. And so all you did was huddle there at Jones Beach and bought a hot dog. Got back in your car and drove back in the rain that summer. Okay? And then there is the nagging sense that not only have you kicked summer away, you are kicking each individual weekend away as they come. Even when you think you're going to do something great. And so here it is, uh, Monday. And uh, just Monday. What happened there? Sunday and Saturday. Well, okay, now the explanation. Well, we're going to go to Connecticut, see. And uh, unfortunately, we thought... <laughs> yeah, what you're saying is you flubbed it again. And there's that nagging sense always around it. And now you're beginning to think to yourself, well, now wait till fall. Now that's going to be beautiful. I got a lot of stuff going... <laughs> well, I want to say that about the third or fourth weekend into fall, you're already going to get bugged about here, here, you know, it was going to be so great in fall, and you were going to get that trench coat, and you were going to walk in a spanking breeze along Fifth Avenue, and you're going to then start saying, yeah, but now wait a minute, now Christmas time, winter, I'll be saying, blah, 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 blah. Endlessly it does, the sense you know, kicking it away. Endlessly, no doubt about it. And so tonight, we think that uh, we're going to have to have a commiseration point. A commiseration moment on our show. Now, the most shows uh, have a public service department where they read what's happening down at the fourth, uh, the fourth uh, church down on the, you know, the whole business of that, giving the announcements about where uh, uh, where the band is playing this week, where the dancers are going to be, and all that. Now, I think the real public service comes once in a while when we come out and say the truth and somehow try to create the impression even though it may be false, that we're all in it together. Did you see the line the other day in the paper about Billy Rose? Got all this stuff about this great place that he used to own before. You know, he had this great place up on an island somewhere off the coast of Connecticut someplace. And there was a line by one of his friends. He says, look, he says, you know, there's all, all this junk about Billy Rose being a gourmet. He says, that was nonsense. Billy Rose was a delicatessen man. <laughs> he was like, sickly, a bad new belly type. Well, now, that's, that's the truth of that comes out. And so are we all on, underneath it. I wonder how many people sitting around a great, tremendous dinner someplace, uh, the kind of Jackie Kennedy is always supposedly attending, this fine uh, French sausage. You have a secret desire for a hamburger and a lot of piccalilli and an eighth and hot dog and uh, some root beer and let it go with that. This is soul food. Uh, to me, soul food, <laughs> I mean... You can have all your ideas of what soul food is, but each man has his own concept of what soul food is. Uh, soul food is not an ethnic thing. It's a people thing. And uh, soul food can be many things, like, uh, not like the hot dog. Uh, this is a kind of soul food. You'll never find it on a gourmet menu. It's the real man working at his own level of his own animal enjoyment and pleasure. Everybody gets his kicks from whatever it is he gets his kicks from. And you can't fake it. You, you can fake it to the rest of the world, but not to yourself. You always, you always have this desire. And so tonight, we have decided that since it's Monday, and it's already the end of July, to have a little commiseration moment. 
Now, would you please give me a little of that romantic music, Bob? Romantic. Oh, that's just great. And so we feel the time has come on this serious radio station to take a little time out for basic creative commiseration. And we want to salute tonight's most notable, enormous, embarrassing flop that has come across our bow for a long time. And we commiserate. We're not putting them on. We commiserate with them. We know how you feel. I'm just a drag. Just once. Wouldn't you like to do something that was an unqualified success? And not only that, it was fun. And then on top of that, everybody applauded it afterwards. I think that's why we all vaguely, and I say this as a guy who's in the business, we all vaguely, when I say we, of course, this is an editorial we, we all vaguely envy people who are in showbiz. No. Well, I think one of the reasons why is that everybody applauds them, even when they lay an egg. Yeah, people are polite. And so some guy is doing this terrible play, the Armpit Theater someplace, you know? And he's up there, and he's, uh, he's walking around, and it's avant-garde drama, and everybody applauds, and he goes off the stage. And he's, uh, even though it was terrible, uh, he has accomplished what everybody secretly wants in his own life. That moment of the curtain comes down, and everybody applauds. Now, I know that in the average walking around scratching like this does not happen. I wonder how many people listening tonight have never known one clap of applause in their life. Now, I don't mean the kind when uh, uh, at the dinner somebody says, Oh, and don't forget uh, old Fred over there. Uh, Fred, you know, who had the programs piled up next to the door. If it wasn't for Fred, we wouldn't have never found them programs. Give him a hand. Well, now, Fred is experiencing a little bit of that. But I'm talking about the real kind of applause that does not come from piling the programs next to the door. It does not come from uh, making sure that the mustard was on hand when they brought in the hot dogs. I'm talking about the kind of applause when uh, the man says, and now, here he is, folks. Uh, would you get ready with that romantic music? And now, here he is, folks. The man that all of us came to see. The man that all of us have been waiting to hear for all this time. The man that all of you have been hearing about. The man of the hour. Here Yes, and Fred stands up. And the thunder of applause rolls out over the auditorium. And his first remarks are greeted with a gasp of applause. A gasp of admiration. And another ripping roar of adulation. All right, all right. This is heady stuff. And I uh, just don't think not more than maybe one guy out of probably a thousand walking around in the average population has ever enjoyed it. But that doesn't mean he doesn't want it. That doesn't mean that he would not give his right anything to get it. <laughs> and so he winds up admiring vaguely and envying greatly the guys that are in showbiz. Because they seem to get it all. And I guess the next best thing to getting applause is giving it. Because somehow then you're part of the transaction, at least. And so you'll find thousands of people who never get applause in their life 
lining up in front of theaters hoping to give some tonight. And therefore, being part of that transaction, that, uh, that mystical thing, that hooray, and that bow, <laughs> and that speak of the mystical transaction. How about all of us right this minute giving a great big cheer for this old friendly station here, huh? How about all of us? Yes, we all know him. Boy, he's been here for 4,927 years. Old W.O.R. They started out many, many years ago giving, uh, uh, what was it they gave? Uh, shucks, I forgot. And uh, now they're given, uh, heck, I can't think of it. But nevertheless, that beloved old, grand old, fantastic thing that all of us, you know, part of our life, W-O-R, in New York, let's give it a big hand, and let's, let's give it a big hand. Oh, hooray, 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 you old pop hooray, 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 you old corporal, Yeah. And so tonight, we have to salute this guy. We've got him. It's appeared way down at the bottom of the page of a New York Times issue here just a couple of days ago. I think it was last Friday. Maybe it was maybe Wednesday. And I stuck it up on my bulletin board to remind me of a lot of things. First of all, it reminds me how apt faith can be and how... Amazingly, these little peculiar coincidences somehow contrive to make a drama far more symbolic than the most symbolic dramatist could ever create. Man is a poor creator when he's confronted with fate itself. Truly more. Here's a little note here. It says the Coast Guard was called out yesterday to rescue a man on a sloop who reported that he was endangered by sharks. 45 miles east of Montauk, Long Island, Montauk Point. But it found instead a lone mariner anxious to end his voyage to England. Oh, the blast of hopes. The dreams that go down the chute. And not to mention the embarrassment. and we won't even use his name we did to protect the innocent out there to protect the disappointed to protect the embarrassed you'll have to find out yourself the sailor a teacher from a town in Long Island which I will not even mention because you'll probably find out anyway the sailor a teacher because that's what makes it even more embarrassing now if he was a garage mechanic or if he was a dentist you know a teacher. This is a guy who stands up in front of a class every week. And they all envy him. You know, old uh, Mr. Johnson. Oh, boy, what a great thing. Now, that's not his name. Uh, he's got he's got a, a thing going. He's a mystique. A teacher must have a mystique. He must be a leader somehow. He's a teacher from this town in Long Island. Had set out last Monday from Montauk on his third attempt to sail to Plymouth, England on his 32-foot sloop. the name of his sloop is? None other than the Waterloo. <laughs> and all of us know what happened at Waterloo. That was one of the larger fiascos of all time. 
guy. I wonder what made him name the defeat. See, it's fate. Somehow guys create their own defeat. They really do. A guy that gets into a car that's named after a man-eating creature of one kind or another is off to be eaten up by it. And he creates his own fate. And a guy who names his boat, uh, let's say, uh, a Baby Jones Locker, he is asking for it. You can imagine, when he sailed away, there must have been a lot of people there saying, Hooray! Hooray, Mr. Johnson! All the way! You're going to sail all the way to England! Hooray! Hooray! And off he goes, out to the sea. And the sail is spanking and the wind is up there and he sails up. The radio of the Coast Guard yesterday saying that you found a man's body. eaten by sharks. Boy, that's an exciting story. And he had pulled her aboard. And he was remaining in his cabin, he said, because he was afraid of sharks. Well, now that sounds like a guy that should sail all the way across the Plymouth. One man on a 32-foot sloop. He's hiding in his cabin afraid of sharks. Now, uh, now I've seen a few sharks. I have never once, though, however, seen a shark leap aboard a boat and come trotting over the deck and he's banging on the cabin door. You come out of there. I know you're in there. You're hiding. <laughs> and he's hiding in the cabin. All right. So you've got the picture already. So this is what he said to the Coast Guard. Can you imagine the Coast Guard? Hey, hey, Chief, come here. You ought to hear this message, boy. You know all those guys on that little uh, Johnson Seahorse pup up and around out there? And I don't know if it's radioing back if we can bring them out some mouth. Ruth Pierce and Ginger Ale, they got an emergency, you know, they got the planes on them. He said, look for this one. Wow. Well, he's in his cabin, and he says he's afraid of sharks. However, when the Coast Guard's 44-foot rescue boat arrived, the crewman reported, and we quote here, no body, no trace of a body aboard the sloop. How did he explain that? Well, you know, the chief comes leaping aboard. The water loses. Where is that body? <laughs> Chris could probably had to drag him out of the cabin, too. He's afraid of the sharks. And uh, he then reported, that is, the teacher, that he had been having fainting spells. Fainting spells. And wanted to be told first to pour I'm fainting all over the place. <laughs> And friends, why tonight we have this little commiseration moment? We're not putting them down at all. We're commiserating them. We've gone through things like this. But why does he keep walking into the sand? This is his third attempt. You have not heard the end of this story yet, friends. The kicker even is greater. He and his sloop were towed to shore. The 
Coast Guard said it had a heck of a lot of difficulty, however, beforehand finding him. Because this sailor had uh, made a navigational error. He had placed himself 90 miles away from where he actually was found by the airplane when they asked him for his reading. I wonder how he expected to hit Plymouth. I had a feeling reading this that he was somehow heading for Greenland when he ran into the shots that kept jumping aboard and the fainting spell started. Well, now, I, 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 uh, I just say that uh, this kind of uh, thing, now don't laugh, friend, because I know what you're doing. You're, you're laughing, and I don't want you to laugh, because uh, think about it for a minute. That's right. Be honest. Imagine yourself aboard a 32-foot sloop all by yourself sailing for Plymouth and off Montauk. Have you ever seen the waves around Montauk? Them are ocean waves. And believe me, that's not like Coney Island. And there are sharks on Montauk. <laughs> I think this teacher suddenly ran into the reality of the ocean. But he did. That's a bad ocean out there, man. And uh, I remember one time a friend of mine, you know, talk about it. Oh, some of the worst embarrassing moments, a public embarrassing moments. You can have an embarrassing moment all by yourself with, you know, a few friends. It's all right. But I remember this guy that I knew one time. He got a, a very dashing type. Right? Tremendously dashing. Or at least he thought of himself a tremendously dashing type. And that uh, he got hung on, just like this guy got hung on the water in the 32-foot sloop. He got hung on something. That set was a little larger for him to chew. He got hung on Grand Prix racing. And he had the money to do something about it. And so uh, uh, he'd hang around down at this joint where I hung around. You know, I was a sports car driver and a bunch of other guys were sports car drivers. We used to once in a while take our sports cars out to lake and lop and race them uh, back and forth a little bit. Once in a great while, we joined one of these little uh, amateur type races and we did a little FCCA racing. And he kept saying that he was going to go into the Grand Prix stuff. And sure enough, one day, the word got out that old Chuck had bought himself one of the rarest, one of the anchors, one of the most evil of all foreign Grand Prix type races. And was it a beauty? Oh, it was a fantastic car. This car was handmade from beginning to end. Came to about $75,000 as she stood, without gas, of course. Uh, magnificent car, blood red, and it was an Italian car. It was not a Ferrari, by the way, in case you're interested. Uh, it was a Bandini, which was a pretty evil car, but today. And so, uh, there was a lot of talk on the papers in town about it. And this was a little Midwestern town, which for the sake of argument, we will call Cincinnati, which is kind of a closed little circuit. Everybody knows everybody pretty much, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in the paper about the local society guys. And this guy was a local society guy. And it was there he is. He's standing there, and he has gotten these beautiful hand-fitted coveralls. They're rare. He's six feet tall, you know, beautiful zippered coveralls, wavy hair, and he kept sitting in the seat of this car. People kept coming around and saying, well, gee, how fast does it go? And uh, he said, come up with figures uh, from a standing stop. Is that what you're talking about? Well, gee, how fast does it go? 184 miles an hour. It's been clocked. Standing stop, blah, 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 blah. And the press took pictures of it. Well, uh, this began to build up. Everybody was really fascinated. It was the first time that the town ever had 
an entry into one of the great major international races, like, uh, you know, Le Mans, like uh, Grand Prix de Monte Carlo. It's not often that uh, there's a car that has a sign on it that says, uh, Act of Beulah. <laughs> not very often. He's all excited. with the grand fest uh, excitement. He had a banquet. The, the uh, JCs gave him a banquet. Uh, people came around to put pictures of him and move it. He even, gave, he even got to the point where he was given autographs. And so, once in a great while, his car would be put on display. This was in the working up voice this thing. Would be put on display at a local track on the road down there one night. And he drove his car in the front of all the people. Everybody was cheering. And it's a midget auto racetrack. And he drove it around the racetrack. The great Grand Prix car. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, look at the places. Listen to that power. Gee, red power, power. And you could see the blue smoke coming out of the back of it. You could smell the, the high-tech gasoline. It would quiver. And I, I remember the crowd gathering around the pits one night at the, at the, at the track. And his car has run around the track. And they're all, all looking at it. He's sitting there casually in the, in the cockpit with his big white head. It's a big, beautiful white crash helmet. Remember the hung his crash helmet with, with a blue visor that came down. He's sitting there and answering questions and people are taking of him. And he entered a couple of little races. And he did quite well, actually. Well, really, he was the only game in town. I mean, when you race a Bandini against a seven-year-old MG, I mean, you're going to win. Yeah, all you got to do is walk out on the track, you're going to win, and drive it around for time. So his reputation as a fantastic racer began to grow. Well, I want to point out at this juncture that probably this teacher from this town in the... Long Island also had created quite a reputation as a sailor. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he must have, you say. Well, so had our racer. He had, he had built up this great reputation, and then he did exactly what this guy with the boat did. What do you think he did? Well, you know these cars have numbers on them, right? Well, do I have to tell you what number that he foolhardily put on the fan tail of that baby? That's right. His blood red car sported a great big black circle. Big black circle, like a bullseye, say. And it was it was it was it was it was framed in this bright, brilliant, blinding orange. You know that kind of orange they call a glow orange? And right in the middle of this glow orange black circle were these gigantic glow orange letters, numbers. One, three. And he called it old number 13. And everybody just applauded. Isn't that that real dashing? He could have had, say, uh, 31. He could have had 12. These are nothing numbers. He could have had the 28. But he has 13. Well, time went on. And the big day came. And his car was seen off at the station. They shipped his car. His big excitement was he was going to enter the first European road race, which was to be held, incidentally, in case you're interested, at Monaco. And that's where he was going. He was going right into the mountain bend. I mean, he was going right into the lion bend. Well, you know the Grand Prix de Monaco, if you've ever, if you've ever seen any of these uh, movies of it, newsreels of it. It's one of the big auto races of the world. It's like you, you know, if you decide to take your turn of fury next year, and what the heck, why not go all out? And so there you are, racing in Indianapolis. 
So he took this car across, and everybody was really excited. He took two or three crew members with him, and they were all dressed up in blood red zippered <laughs> these nylon form. He had all the trappings, you know. That's the thing about it. He had all of them. The newsreels arrived, and the big day arrived. I even hate to tell you about this. Now, do you know anything about about Grand Prix stars? Well, they're not like they're not like the kind of stars you have in Indianapolis, where everybody gets in the car and they start out, and 33 cars take off at once. It doesn't work that way. There is a traditional start for this particular type of race, and the cars are all put in a kind of uh, angle. Uh, you know what? Rather to describe it, it's more like angle parking. All the cars are angled in to the side of the track, and they're all lined up. And here they are. There must be uh, 60 cars all lined up, and they're angled in. They're not on the track. They're angled in. Now, the idea of this type of start is that the automobile is supposed to be theoretically a sports car, which means that the car has to have a starter, not an external starter like they quite often use in Indianapolis races or a push. This is a starter. It has to have a starter. It has to also have a reverse gear. That's part of the law of the international type of racing, which, you, you know, they don't have a reverse on the Indianapolis cars. And so the, all the drivers stand off to one side of the track, and suddenly a cannon fires off, and the boy says, Driver, man, your car! Boom! And off they go. It's very exciting. And they call it out in about five languages. You know, they holler. They'll go. Well, everybody goes eight hey, instantly. These guys all run across the track. You see about 200 drivers. <laughs> and they're all dressed in their coveralls and their hats and helmets. And some of them are fat, some of them are skinny. You know, that one of the things about drivers, many a driver's been won, many a race has been won because the guy was in better condition. He could run faster. Yeah, they got to run across the track, and they jump in the car, and they start the car. And they instantly back up, and away they go. Well, it's a wild scene. I've seen a couple of these, tri uh, this type of race, uh, this start. It's just an unbelievable scene. When you see all these cars, there must be at least uh, $2 million. Oh, excuse me, I'm talking about $20 million worth of cars on the track. And the enormous engines, the great big Ferraris and the great big Maseratis and the, you know, these great big Lotuses and the whole thing. And when they all start out at once, you see these guys run across the track, they jump into their seats, and you hear these cars all the... Way they go, the whole field. They backed up, and you see more weaving and bobbing and ducking. Listen, if you think you've seen a wild scene down of two guys from Harrison, when everybody, the store is closed and everybody wants to get out on Route 9 before everybody else, you've never seen, oh, this is even cut fast. Well, here is my friend, and he is the representative of all the great people of this Midwestern city. He is standing by the edge of the track there, and all the great international drivers are all around him. You know, guys like Sterling Moss, guys like Phil Hill, Oh, they're all there, and all the great drivers, and uh, Graham, Graham Gill, and they're all lined up, and they're all waiting for the gun to go off. And they're taking newsreels off. Now, these newsreels, of course, are going to be shown all over the world. Very important race. And he's nervous. And uh, still, he's uh, very simple there. 
there, right in the middle of all of them, blood red magnificent, privately owned, non-team, non-race team car, the Bambini. Oh, goes the car. He runs across the track. 16,000 drivers are in the cockpits of the Ferraris, in the cockpits of the Maserati, and the first great roar of the charging, the enormous explosions of these engines, whack the magnificent, the whole panorama wide open. The crowd leaps to his feet. <laughs> and there's a great cloud of castor oil, a great cloud of, of high-octane burned gasoline rises above the track, and 76 cars go roaring down towards the first big turn. The only problem is that there were 70, 77 cars to the race. And there, up against the curb, is the Fantine. And my friend has leaped into it. He's trying to get his car started. He is frantically moving. He reaches out once again, and it had a, a starter. Did not have a starter, but it had a lever that you pulled out. And in his fantastic excitement, he had leaped into the car and pulled the starter button right out of the bag. And there she sat. Now he jumps out of the car. He pushes it out backwards, out on the track. See, this is allowed. And incidentally, in the rules, you cannot have any mechanic help you. It's all going to be done by yourself. He pushed the car out on the track. He's all by himself. There are 195,000 Europeans watching this drama. He pushes the car back to the center of the track. He goes over from the front of it now. He turns the steering wheel. Have you ever pushed the car? He turns the steering wheel around. He'll find his spirit. And now he pushes it forward again. And now he's got it pointed down the track. He reaches in and he puts it into gear. You see, he wants to get this thing going. He gives it a little jiggle. It won't start. He starts pushing it. He hires. He's struggling. And now the car suddenly goes, Pum. he's in the back of the pushing. The car He is showing great, great courage. This is European courage. Great courage. He's getting his car going. When suddenly the car goes, what an angry car it starts to scream down the track, but he ain't in it. That car roared down the track about a quarter of a mile with him hanging on to the tail of it. He is clinging to inside, he is hanging backwards out of it with his hands on the steering wheel. The crowd is screaming. What a fantastic sight. They have never seen a guy ride his car piggyback in the Grand Prix de Monte Carlo. Oh, the Grand Prix de Monaco, whatever the heck it was. Well, that car went for about a half a mile down the track, and it's getting hotter than a pistol. Look, you know how a car gets. And he ain't in the right place. He ain't sitting in the seat. Where he is sitting is where all the heat is coming out of. Figure it out, Granny. Well, you never saw, you never saw a more scorched pair of beautiful, magnificent, hand-tailored, nylon, zippered, blood-red coveralls in your life, and you should have seen where it was scorched. Well, he hopped off that car <laughs> after about a quarter of a mile of this, and the car just sort of went... 
got out and walked around his car with an abject disgust on his... All of this is being recorded for the newsreels. And then, suddenly, from the left, comes the field approaching. So his troubles are not yet over. From the field, from the sound, you can hear the entire group of cars now. They've made the first circuit, and they're approaching the Bantini, which is standing in the middle of the track. And you can hear the thunder of it rising up over the horizon like China across the bay. music, please. Just a little romantic music. We'll need a little of that here at this point. We need a little of that. And so tonight we salute old number 13. Wasn't with us very long. But when number 13 was on the track, it certainly cut a fine figure. Probably the first time.